talked about uh, Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. Now, I'm going to, as by way of introduction, cover the preliminary remarks. We won't read all the scriptures this week. And so if you missed last week and you're interested in those contexts, please refer to our podcast or go online and, and you can see last week's message. Uh, but, but the point I was trying to make that I, I hope that we establish is what Paul is doing here is actually powerfully counter-revolutionary to the expected norms of the culture at large. And so um, I'm not going to go back into that since we've covered it thoroughly last week, but that's the context of, of, of this passage here in Colossians is Paul is telling these new believers, he, that he, these new disciples, how do you remain faithful to Christ and begin, begin to live a revolutionary, alternative, redemptive story? And he's telling them how to apply that within the culture that they find themselves, but not only the culture, but also in the circumstance in which they find themselves. And as we're going to see today, even if, you, even if they find themselves in a limited circumstance, and this is going to be Paul's counsel to them. So Colossians 3, the preliminary principles that we talked about last week that are present here in this text, but not overt, that I think help with the context, uh, are number one, uh, patriarchy is a consequence of the fall. And secondly, redemptive equality is the rule of the kingdom of God. Uh, so why do you say con uh, patriarchy is a consequence of the fall is because the scriptures say that. Uh, in, in, in Genesis 3.16, when God is pronouncing the consequences that are going to take place now that Adam and Eve have chosen, rather than trusting and walking in him with intimacy, to bypass that and to pursue the uh, attractiveness of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that brought with it a, 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 a shame, it brought with it fear, it brought with it antagonism within the created order that you don't see present in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, Paul, uh, so God is speaking to them and he is speaking to them about the consequences that they're going to experience since they made that choice. So, here, so in that line of consequences, he addresses Adam, he addresses Eve, and he addresses the serpent. What he says to Eve in part is found in Genesis 3.16. He said to the woman, I will anticipate your labor plan intensify your labor pains, you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And so we talked about that that word desire is really, uh, it's translated in the next chapter as the word, uh, whenever God says to Cain, uh, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. Same word for desire. So it's talking about this conflict of rule that's taking place as a consequence of consuming the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, um, so, so we see that that is in contrast to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, they don't reveal a vision of patriarchy. In Genesis 1 and 2, reveal that humankind was to share stewardship of creation, but never does God suggest that humans are meant to rule other humans. So, but however, we know in the kingdom of men and the kingdom of the world, that is very much the assumption that there is those equipped to rule and those who are equipped to be under subjugation. And we can look at the history of humanity and we see this play out over and over and over again. But I think it's really important because as people rediscover the context of the Bible, we have arguments about conservative interpretations and progressive interpretations that we, un that we understand what Paul is doing is he is inserting an idea to move, to progress the dominant culture 
in the direction of redemption. He's not saying take up arms, blow the whole thing up, and establish a new utopia. That's not what he says. He's saying within this system, we can follow Jesus. We can live as people clothed with Christ. And if we do, we introduce into the system an alternative narrative that challenges the dominant narrative in quite a revolutionary and countercultural way. That's what he's doing. So, so if it's not Paul's assumption that there is one gender that's, that's superior to the other, where might that come from? Well, it comes from multiple places, but we're talking about the assumptions of society in the Roman Empire in the first century. They were deeply influenced by their philosophers. One such philosopher that you might be familiar with is Aristotle. Aristotle is not only a philosopher that has profoundly, that profoundly influenced the Roman Empire, but his work has profoundly influenced the entire trajectory of Western civilization. So if Paul is not promoting gender inequality, here's one of the sources where that would have come from. And I thought it would be good for us all to hear what Aristotle says in comparison to what Paul says, because I think Paul gets a bad rap in this discussion sometimes. If you want to see real misogyny, what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, we live in a misogynistic society, but here's how you can live an alternative redemptive story in the context of that society. If you want to see real misogynistic assumptions, get into a little bit of Aristotle. Here's what he had to say. But is there anyone thus intended by nature to be a slave and for whom such a condition is expedient and right? Or rather, is not all slavery a violation of nature? There is no difficulty in answering this question on grounds both of reason and of fact. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked for subjugation, others for rule. Again, the male is by nature, uh, by nature superior and the female inferior. I really hope that no one just catches that clip. I am quoting here from Aristotle with whom I'm disagreeing. Um, uh, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full grown, full grown is superior to the younger and the more immature. This is what you get. Notice that he says it is obvious. You don't have to bring it back up, but, but just remember, he said in this quote that it is, um, it's, there's no difficulty in answering the question about whether or not slavery is just on grounds of both reason and fact. Guess what reason and fact are? Those are nice, beautiful fruits that you can pluck off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's what you get when you start living your life through our ability to categorize good and evil rather than walking in humility with God, who really is an idol smasher in terms of our um, cultural morality. And so, and so this is what you get. So, so this is the perspective he's coming from, and it seems perfectly natural to him. Paul is challenging this idea in his letters. Patriarchy and matriarchy must give way to mutual submission in the new covenant gospel community of Christ, according to Ephesians 5. 
Secondly, we said redemptive equality is the rule in the kingdom of God. Galatians 3.28 simply states, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ. One set of preliminary principles. The other unmistakable an inescapable set of principles we need to look at is Jesus's teaching on the use of power and authority in the kingdom of God. Because whatever you've seen modeled by systems of the world um, is just the opposite. In fact, you know when Jesus says not to judge, he's talking about the worth of the person. He's not saying we don't have a right to have an opinion or an observation about toxic behavior. That's not judging, that's discernment. As long as you are observing and applying wisdom to the behavior, but not applying a value or a lesser value to the person, then, then uh, you are not violating Jesus' call to never judge because Jesus often made observations about toxic behavior around him. And so... It is interesting, and I'm not speaking this as a condemnation, I'm just food for thought, something maybe to ponder over your coffee tomorrow morning. Jesus' model of leadership flips the model of the world upside down on its head. And back in the 80s, there was this revelation that because of the way we do church, honestly, modern churches aren't successful if they're led by people with pastoral gifts. Now, if you want to be a community and you want to be small, people with pastoral gifts can lead those churches. But the truth is, because of the way we do church and because of the, the value system that we put on what growth is supposed to look like, modern churches are, expand, are expected to grow and expand one year after another and to scale just like a business. And so back in the 80s, there was this recognition in seminaries and, and so forth. They're not doing their job because they're producing pastors or maybe even biblical scholars, but they're not producing leaders. So there's this massive new movement to introduce leadership into the church. You can groups and studies. Now, please hear me. I am not saying there is no value in those. I've participated in those leadership studies and I've learned a lot from them. I'm not condemning them outright, but I think it's interesting that after two decades of emphasizing in pastors, no, you're not supposed to be just shepherds. You primarily need to be leaders and CEOs of your congregations. Then all of a sudden we had a near epidemic of pastors having to be called to step down because of their abusive leadership styles. So the preoccupation with corporate leadership didn't produce health for the church. It by and large produced ill health for the church. Why? Because leadership principles were always taken from the examples that we see in business and in military leadership. That is not the way leadership works in the kingdom of God. It is flipped entirely upside down where leaders are there to serve. And look, there are some business leadership books that emphasize service now. I'm not making a blanket statement of condemnation, but I just think it's interesting that we see all these abuses of leadership after we started educating pastors about leadership. Because although pastors do need to be leaders, their model has to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to listen to what Jesus has to say about the use of power and authority within the kingdom of God. And we looked at this in depth. I'm just going to read them briefly here. Principles for authority and power in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, power is for service, never privilege. 
in the kingdom of God, service is offered equally even to the undeserving. Remember, that's the passage in John where Jesus washes the feet of his faithful disciples and of his denier and of his um, betrayer and of his doubter. He serves them all equally. And so in the kingdom of God, service is offered equally even to the quote undeserving. Finally, in the kingdom of God, the leader gladly lays down their rights to bless those they are serving. These principles, this is not how power and authority by and large has been modeled by the world throughout human history. Power and authority ends up being for self-centered ambition and for privilege and for creating a whole new class that's above the other class. The kingdom of God flips this upside down. If that's the kind of position we're wanting, there is no position for us in serving in God's kingdom. Because those who would be great in the kingdom of God must be a servant to all. So these are the principles that Paul is now working out in the context to a Roman structure of how they uh, organize their households. We talked about the one, the instructions to husbands and wives last week. Let's go to the rest of the verse. But as we do, remember, we're gonna look at today Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, but Colossians 3.17 is the governing thought that Paul is working out in this following paragraph within all these instructions. So we've got to jump from 17 and then jump down to 3.22. 3.17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Instructions to husband and wives and children, then now to slaves and masters. Verse 22, slaves obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will, re that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Verse, chapter four, verse one. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now, what we said last week applies here as well. Verses 22 through 25, not all that revolutionary. Encouraging slaves to do good work, to be obedient, this would have not have been something that would have raised an eyebrow. They probably would have clapped or affirmed him. What is radically revolutionary about this text is chapter four, verse one, because there was not an, ex except, there was not an expectation that masters would be under an obligation to deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. What Paul is doing here is radically countercultural because he is putting in terms of their life before God, the master and the slave on equal footing. This would have been offensive in the first century. In fact, this would have been seen, Paul would have, this phrase, this idea, if it put in our modern times, we would have dismissed him as a progressive because he's progressing beyond the expectations of, of, of uh, the culture. And, and so Paul is, Paul is introducing an idea that the seed of the gospel can begin to transform a society if we are willing to, those of us within that society, to live for the expectations of the Lord Jesus alone. 
regardless of our station in life. And so I have to, we have to say, because, you know, <laughs> even saying the word slave feels just terrible to do in public setting like this. Uh, and it's good that we feel that because that's evidence of the Spirit of God who is remi reminding us of the injustice of subjugation of one people over the other. However, I don't want to shy away from it, but I do need to say this. Slavery in the ancient world was not the same as slavery in colonial America. However, it still meant one person owning, and that says owling, it's not supposed to be owling, it's a typo, I apologize, owning another and the lack of rights and freedom for the person that was owned. In other words, um, you might hear an approach to this verse saying, well, Paul's like okay with slavery because it really was like an employer relationship in the first century. Not true. It's not true. Because at the end of the day, those people weren't employees, they were property. And they had limited freedom and they had no rights. And so, and so it's still addressing a system of oppression. However, it is fair to note the system of oppression was not like the um, terrorism of colonial slavery. And so, so we want to look at this in this context. So when we say slaves, it, it will be a mistake to read into this colonial America is what I'm saying. We've got to read into it the cultural context in which it was written. Is that, as Scott McKnight said, here's the point though of connection between both systems. This ownership is motivated by the goal of economic profit and social status. This ownership is motivated by the goal of economic profit and social status. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say. Those clothed with Christ will not oppress or exploit other people as resources for their own profit. Now, I'm saying this and I'll give you a preview as to why. I don't think anyone here, even though as Ann says, we don't have a lot of rules here, um, but I don't think anyone here is comfortable or affirmative of the idea of a human being owning another human being for profit and social status. But remember, this isn't a rule book. This is a story. And what Paul is saying is this is how you apply this gospel value of equality in our context. Our context is very different. And although none of us would say you can own another human being for financial profit, many of us are engaged in relationships in which knowingly or unknowingly we are creating anti-Christ toxic environments for those relationships because we don't exploit people for profit, but we will exploit people for them to meet our emotional needs. In particular, if we have not learned how to walk with God in such a way that he fills that deep existential void that every single human on earth is born with, then we will seek to fill that void by exploiting and using and manipulating other people so that they can give us the significance that can only come from God alone. So in principle, I do think that this idea has something to say to Artie Favre. I hate it, but when I look in the mirror, I know Many, many, for many years of my marriage, I only started, understood marriage to be about being with someone who would give their life to make me happy. 
and, 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 and that they would root out all of the woundedness and neuroses and rejection and loneliness that I feel, and they would feel that deep void. And so I used them and manipulated in order to get them to make me feel better about who I am. And then I realized one day it is idolatry. I was sacrificing my marriage on the altar of idolatry by seeking to make my wife my deity. And it's not a job description that she's equipped for. Only one person is equipped to be my deity. And so I do think that we need to listen to these gospel principles and reflect upon how we engage in our relationships as we walk through this text. Verse 22 simply says, slaves obey your human masters and everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord, which is a very interesting concept because in principle, uh, the wisdom that Paul says applies really to all of us. He's essentially saying that your service can't be for pleasing people while they're watching. It can't be for that purpose. Your service has to be moved from an, an, a, a, a motivation of seeking, uh, pleasing people while they're watching to a motivation of true sincerity. This is an outworking of the ethic that Jesus speaks about in his teachings, which is his followers are supposed to reject all expressions of hypocrisy. And we're, instead, we're called to live lives of sincerity. And this is what he's speaking to. The word translated, this is interesting here. Um, um, it says in this last phrase, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Well, that's an interesting translation, isn't it? Well, the word translated human masters in the first phrase and the word translated Lord in the last phrase are the exact same Greek word. It's a, it's a translation decision based on, according to the context, what's he referring to when he uses the word here and how can we most accurately communicate the author's thoughts in English? That's what's going on. And so they chose to use the first one translated as human masters and the second phrase translated as though it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that may be the case. Uh, the idea of the fear of the Lord is certainly a Jewish ethical value. But it is not necessary to assume that this is intended to mean out of fear for Lord Jesus. In fact, many scholars believe that it might be more appropriate to translate the last phrase of verse 22 as fearing your masters. Why? Because he's acknowledging the truth that they are in a limited circumstances and the masters do exert legal authority over them. And so he, he is mentioning that because he is keeping them from interpreting Jesus' Jesus's revolution as though it's supposed to be a violent revolution, I believe. He's saying there are still consequences if we just outright attack this system. I'm giving you a different way to consider. Those in a circumstance that is not preferable are encouraged to resist hypocrisy and to do their work with sincerity, to do their work from the heart. I, and you know what I just um, did? I just jumped to the next section of the notes. I apologize. Let's finish this other section. So it, it could be fearing your masters rather than fearing Christ. But here's what I want you to see. And I know that this is challenging a little bit, but let's ponder it for a second because I think it's brilliant. Paul is expertly navigating how those clothed with Christ can live an alternative narrative within an unjust system without suffering the consequences of misguided religious zeal and outright rebellion. And history will show forth how important this council was. I mean, this, are, 
we familiar with that? What happened when the masses took hold of Martin Luther's religious revelation of justification by faith? And of course, he began his reform to the Catholic Church saying, Pope and these systems of authority are unjust. Well, shortly after that, and this grieved Martin Luther's heart, the populace took a hold of these ideas, but did not respond to them in the spirit of Christ, but in the spirit of revolution, many, many peasants were slaughtered as a result. It's one of the things that grieved Martin Luther in his life and in his ministry. And I think that that speaks to what Paul's doing here. He's saying there is, there's, there's an alternative way for us to overturn and to challenge this unjust system. Counter-cultural revolution is what Paul is suggesting, but he's suggesting that, it, that for followers of Jesus, that revolution is executed through peace and service, not violence and rebellion. And so for what it's worth, that's Paul's opinion. I'm not saying you have to have that one, but I do think that it is important for us to think through this. And I'm just gonna say it because the behaviors that, the antichrist behaviors that supposed followers of Jesus will justify when it comes to political rhetoric is astounding. Our rhetoric should not match the talking heads of our preferred political organization or party. And we will justify downright antichrist behaviors toward those in another party as though we're standing for the truth of God and for what's right. Paul is expressing another way. If you want to win your political opponent, you love them and you serve them and you take time to listen to their story and at least understand why they hold the convictions that they hold. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to affirm them, but you do need to be able to understand them through talking and through service and through relationship. So I think that it has a direct bearing in our context, even though obviously and, one, and gladly, it's very different than the one we're looking at. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done with the Lord, not for people, and for the Lord, not for people, knowing that you will receive a reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. You know, one of the things that we simply can't appreciate from that verse is, I'm sorry, can you put that up one quick time, is this this bit... In verse 24, it says, knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. We cannot comprehend what that would have meant for a slave in the first century who would not only have any rights to economic security disconnected from the master, but would never, ever receive an inheritance unless it was an extraordinary circumstance of a childless master. But in general, they would never have an inheritance. And Paul is saying, listen, you have two citizenships here. You've got this physical citizenship in Rome, but you have a higher citizenship. You have a higher Lord, a higher father, and that father will see to it that you also receive an inheritance. Here are Paul's instructions where he says here, look at that first phrase, whatever you do, do it from the heart. Do it from the heart. This is such an incredible phrase because in evangelical Christianity, I was affirmed and applauded and promoted as long as I pursued the proper behaviors, even though for years my heart was not at all in them. 
And so what happened is that created a very toxic atmosphere in my soul where I learned how to live for the applause of men rather than for the affirmation of Jesus. And so Paul is injecting a warning here. He's not talking about behavioral modification. He's talking about heart transformation, which takes a little bit more time and it takes a little bit more cooperation with the Holy Spirit, but that's what Paul is affirming here. Do this not simply as lip service or play acting, but actually do this work from the heart. Those in a circumstance that is not preferable are encouraged to resist hypocrisy and to do their work with sincerity. Now look at this. The motive for this service is rooted in the fact that those who are clothed with Christ will serve others as though they are serving the Lord. This is a principle, again, that flows straight out of the teachings of Jesus. Go take a look at Matthew 25 and uh, contemplate it in, uh, in, in context to this paragraph. Paul encourages slaves that they, uh, that they serve the Lord Jesus. Now look what he's doing in, in doing this thus placing their earthly masters in an inferior position to Jesus. You see how subtle this is. This is how the revolution of the kingdom of God works. Again, it's a principle that is modeled by Jesus. Remember what he says? Someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the apostle. This is not about being weak and defenseless. Do you know the moral strength it takes to stand in the presence of injustice and when violence is inflicted upon you to not return in violence. It's a powerful, powerful stance of liberation. It is not weakness and inferiority. This is the principle of the kingdom of God. I just love, and I'm gonna butcher it a little bit, and and I'm sure that we all have different opinions about all these kind of political matters. Um, I'm not addressing any of that. I just love Martin Luther's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s attitude in some of his marches. You come with us with hate, we're gonna respond to you in love. That is a principle he learned from studying the writings of Jesus Christ and Gandhi. And why? Because this is the principle of the kingdom of God. And so so we see hints of this already fleshing itself out. Paul is being extremely practical. Any work for justice can never justify wrongdoing in its execution. He is also making it very clear that our heavenly status transcends our earthly status. Transcends our, in fact, I would say our earthly status is just a temporary label that we use because our society has organized itself around labels. But the true essence of who we are is our citizenship is in heaven which means we can live in the sphere of the rule, authority, and reign of the kingdom of heaven right now, today. We can see ourselves ultimately as subjects to King Jesus before we see ourselves as subjected to any other expression of governmental rule or authority. Now then he flips it around. This is the part that would have been unusual. 4-1. Masters, Deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know you too have a master in heaven. Although 325 certainly seems to belong to the structures of the, of the slaves, where he says uh, wrongdoers will be punished or they will face the consequences, but that's the verse he has right before he transitions into this one. So I would encourage you to consider that, that 325 
although the text makes it clear it's addressed to the slaves, it also serves as a connective transition to the instructions to the masters. Wrongdoers will experience the consequences for their actions, including the masters themselves. That is what makes this text a revolutionary text, moving society in the, in the uh, direction of equality and liberation, or we might say shalom. Paul, once again, he's speaking in contrast with Aristotle, who did not believe that slaves deserve uh, justice because they were property. I had an extra did not in there. Man, two typos, how embarrassing. And I messed up the opening announcement. I'm just gonna hate myself the rest of the day, but nonetheless, there it is. Just kidding, that was, that was me in religion. It's not me in the gospel. Um, Paul calls the masters to proactively establish conditions that are just and fair. This is most definitely a progressive approach to the treatment of slaves. I am so sick of the way we've allowed the world to co-opt our phrases. And yes, I did that on purpose because we have been taught to be afraid of the word progressive as it lights like the sign of Satan himself. I would rather be, have tat 666 tattooed on my forehead than to be labeled a progressive. That's foolish, my friends, because if you look at the history of Christianity, it's most definitely on the side of progression. It's Christianity and faithfulness to Jesus that have progressed societies to a place of equality and liberation. Now, I am not saying that as a political movement, it's never gone awry. I do believe that. And I do not want the label, I, I am not a progressive Christian, but neither am I a conservative Christian. I simply wanna be a faithful to Jesus Christian. That's what I wanna be. And if you do that, there will be times that your convictions will make you look conservative and times when your convictions will make you look progressive. Stop demonizing those words. It's silliness, my friends. Sometimes we are light and preservation and we conserve what is best. Sometimes we see injustice and we progress forward into another place. That should be the experience of all of us living life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the colony of America or the empire of America, we might say. Those clothed with Christ work for a just world within their sphere of influence. And this is what he's doing with the masters. He is calling the masters to completely reimagine their role within the uh, dynamics of the uh, typical Roman household. Paul is exhorting a countercultural stance against the accepted practice of financial, verbal, and sexual exploitation of slaves. He's now calling a whole class of masters to reconsider and reimagine and relive what their place of privilege allows them to do. Because in the kingdom of God, privilege is an obligation to serve. That's what privilege is. Paul, uh, masters are commanded to treat their slaves as equal members of the family of Christ. We just can't imagine what that counsel must have been like for them to hear this. If you follow Jesus, they're not your property. They're your brothers and sisters. This is what Paul is telling them. The word translated fair means equality or equality of treatment. 
Again, Paul's gospel conviction is that fairness should progress by the choices and actions of those clothed with Christ. Masters are called to treat their slaves as brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul is doing here is he's literally envisioning an entirely new order that takes a deliberate stance against exploitation and injustice. Why? Because he was part of a political movement that was uh, in vogue for the day? No, because he wanted to live a life of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. And that is the fruit of that desire, is that a recognition that the people of God work for the shalom of God. Now, as we get ready to close, I have to encourage you to take a look at the parallel passage in Ephesians. Again, it's the same order. It's Paul saying, first, we are mutually submissive to one another, and then he gives instructions to wives and then husbands and to children and to fathers, and then to slaves and masters. But he, but, but he expands on it there in Ephesians. And here's how Ephesians uh, summarizes this paragraph. Verse seven, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good, now this is instructions to the slaves here, pay close attention, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. Look at this, he just told them, serve with a good attitude. Verse nine, and masters treat your slaves, what's it say? The same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no favoritism with him. So here in Ephesians, Paul overtly says, you are to offer your slaves the same treatment and attitude that they're obligated to offer you. Not because of the mores and expectations of society, but because you are both followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and subjects of King Jesus and his kingdom. Paul is opening the door to a new way of life for the slave in the first century Rome. Treating slaves justly and fairly elevates them to access the same fairness as their earthly masters. Redemptive equality is the rule for the kingdom of God. Now, as we get ready to close in worshipful reflection, Let's go from their story to our story to maybe my story. What did we learn from this text? We've learned that those clothed with Christ must reject any inclination to use and exploit others for their own financial profit. We, we know that we live in a society that is now characterized by the constant ubiquitous presence of sexual exploitation and pornography. It is right to educate people on the toxicity that is created in the soul and in the mental health of someone who continually exposes themselves to explicit material. You can read science, you can read uh, psychology, lots of evidence on that destruction. And the church is right to acknowledge that. What saddens me about this conversation though, is the way we frame it is 
as though our passion is about the conformity of the man using pornography to just stop doing that. When we should be more passionately moved by the people who are being exploited by the opportunity for the man to be watching that. That is the thing that should make us roar like lions because we are the people of God and the great sin of pornography isn't the impure thoughts that it creates. Although that's a sin, I'm not saying that's justifiable. The great sin of pornography is it is the use and exploitation of other human beings for the purpose of profit. Do you see how relevant these ideas are still intertwined even with our society who would say, if we don't believe in slavery, we just believe in profiting by human trafficking. But we didn't do the trafficking ourselves, we just commodified it and brought it to the masses. You see how wicked of a thing this is. Christian men or women struggling with pornography, these are the things that you should consider even beyond whether or not you're following your purity rules, which I'm not saying that they don't have a place, but let your heart be broken over the exploitation of others because then you might find the spirit not only delivering you from your pornography habit, but giving you a calling to justice that he's asking you to participate in. So that's all I gotta say about that. Um, we do not use people as resources for our convenience. Rather, we serve others in love. So the only antidote to using people is loving people and serving them. It's the only thing that works. It's not changing your mind. Like, oh, I, I used to use people and now I see that's wrong and I think it's good to serve people. It won't matter. It won't make a difference in your life. But actively loving and serving others, that will transform your heart. So... In responding to this passage this week, I would ask you to consider this. This week, make a daily intentional goal of offering loving service to someone every day. And yes, your partner counts, your children counts. Some of us may not take this experiment outside of our home, and yet gospel transformation will be present in our home if we will do this. Track your moments of service. Now, I know I'm not talking to everybody here. I'm not pretending anymore that everyone's going to do this. However, based on the emails I received, I know that participants in these little challenges each week have grown. It's doubled over the past six months from two to four. So four of you, I, I really want you to, 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 to consider this experiment. Track your moments of service in a journal or notes in your phone. And then share your experience with someone who is seeking to live faithful to Jesus. My friends, what I'm trying to model in these is this is actually how spiritual education works. It doesn't work based on the information you take in. It works on the information you're acting upon. Knowing more will never transform your heart. Proactively serving others in the nature of Jesus will transform your heart. You will never think yourself into acting better. But here's the glory. I promise you, you can act yourself into thinking better. 